Section 12 of The Crime of the French Café and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Crime of the French Café and Other Stories by Nicholas Carter. Nick Carter's Ghost Story, Chapter 2. Nick is Boldly Challenged nick knew the old plumber mansion well there is not a house to match it in this country a hundred years and more ago it must have been the scene of strange adventures it was built certainly by one who did not expect a peaceful and quiet life within it the thick stone walls which look so unnecessarily massive are really double there are secret passages and movable panels and trap-doors enough in that house to hide a man if a regiment of soldiers was after him. Evidently such a place offered every chance to shrewd criminals who might have a motive for playing upon the superstitious beliefs of the present proprietor. Anybody who couldn't get up a respectable ghost in the old plumber house must be a very poor fakir. The mere fact that all the doors and windows of a room were closed did not prevent any person from going in or out at will if he knew the secrets of the house. Nick thought of these things as he rode down there in the cars, and he prepared himself for an interesting time, chasing bogus ghosts through secret doors and panels. But a surprise awaited him on his arrival. Colonel Richmond met him at the door, and, by Nick's request, took him at once to the room from which the articles had been stolen. It was a modern room in a new part of the house, Nick was entirely unprepared for this. He did not know that the colonel had built any additions to the old mansion. Colonel Richmond spoke of this remarkable feature of the case at once. If this thing had happened in the old part of the house, he said, I shouldn't have thought that it was anything but an ordinary robbery. Every room there can be entered in a secret manner, and no doubt there are plenty of panels and passages which even I do not know. "'But there's nothing of the kind here. "'This wing was built under my eye, and from my own design. "'I saw the beams laid and the floors nailed down. "'There is absolutely no way to enter the room in which we now stand, "'except by the two doors and the window. "'My nephew has told you about the robberies. "'You know that the doors and the windows were practically guarded all the time.' I don't believe that any mortal being could have got in here and got out again without being seen. As for myself, I understand the case perfectly. My belief will seem strange to you, because you do not see with the eye of the spirit. Everything has to be done by human hands, according to your matter-of-fact notion. I know better, and I tell you that these jewels were taken by the spirit of my deceased aunt and that she did it to show me that my daughter was wrongfully in possession of them. When a healthy, hearty old man, who seems to be as sane as anybody else in the world, stands up and talks such nonsense as this, what can one say to him? It is useless to tell him that he is wrong about the whole matter. It is folly to attempt to reason with him. The only way to do is to show him a perfectly natural explanation of the mystery and simply make him see it. That was a task which Nick had before him, and it must be owned that, 
At the first glance, he did not see how he was going to accomplish it. He examined the room and satisfied himself that it had no secret entrances. Such being the case, Nick was unable to form a theory of the robbery which would fit the facts as they had been stated to him. After looking at the rooms, he went with Colonel Richmond to the parlor, on the ground floor, and there proceeded to question him about the mysterious occurrences. "'There have been three robberies in all,' said the Colonel, "'and they have been exactly alike. "'In every case, my daughter has left some articles of jewelry on the dressing-table in her bedroom, "'and one of them has vanished, never more than one at a time.' Twice it happened while she was in the adjoining room. The bedroom door, which opens into the hall, was locked on these occasions. The third time she was in the hall, talking with my nephew. He was standing in the upper hall, leaning over the banister rail. They were discussing a plan for a drive out into the country. Quite a party was to go. Horace had just received word from a gentleman whom they had invited that he would be unable to go. He had read the note in his room, and he called downstairs to my daughter to tell her about it. That was how they happened to be standing in the hall. Presently, she went back into her room, and almost immediately noticed that a small locket set with diamonds had been taken. She screamed, and Horace and I came running to her room. We searched it thoroughly. There was nobody there. The door between the bedroom and the sitting room was open, but the other door of the sitting room, which opens into the old portion of the house, was locked and bolted on the inside. Now, I submit to you, Mr. Carter, whether in that case any other way of entrance or exit was possible except by the windows. I'm bound to admit, responded Nick, that if the doors were in the condition you describe, no person could have entered or left those rooms except by the windows. Well, it had been raining hard, and the ground was soft. We looked carefully under all the windows. There was no sign of a footprint, and nobody could have walked there without making tracks. Oh, it is clear enough. Why do we waste your time in a search for invisible spirits of the dead? He rambled on in this way for several minutes, and Nick did not try to stop him. The colonel was at last interrupted, however, by the entrance of his daughter. Mrs. Pond had been out driving. She learned, on her return, that a stranger had come to the house, and she hurried into the parlor, suspecting who was there. "'I am delighted to see you, Mr. Carter,' she exclaimed. "'You will clear up this abominable mystery and relieve my father's mind from these delusions.' "'Then you do not share his opinions,' said Nick." Mrs. Pond laughed nervously. "'No, indeed,' she said, "'and yet I must admit that I am quite unable to explain the facts. "'I suppose you have heard the story?' "'Yes.' "'What do you think about it?' "'It is much too early in the case for me to express an opinion, "'but there are one or two questions that I should like to ask you.' "'Do so, by all means. "'It was at my request that you were called in.' At your request? Yes, I talked with Horace about it, and at last we agreed to ask you to take the case. He didn't believe in it at first, for he did not want to let anybody into our family secrets. 
She glanced at her father as she spoke. It was evident that the family was a good deal ashamed of Colonel Richmond's spiritualistic delusions, and wanted to keep quiet about them. I talked Horace into it after a while, Mrs. Pond continued, and at last he became as enthusiastic as myself. We know that you will find the thief. Thank you, responded Nick. There is one point which seems peculiar to me. After you have been robbed once, why did you continue to leave the jewels unwatched in the very place from which one of them had previously been taken? I insisted upon it, said Colonel Richmond. I told my daughter that she must make no change in her habit of wearing or caring for my aunt's jewels. I wished to show that we were not foolishly trying to hide them from the eye of a spirit, but that we wished to learn the desire of my departed aunt as soon as possible. It was by your order, then, said Nick, that your daughter continued to put the jewels on her dressing table when she laid them aside for any reason? It was. I have just left some of them there now, said Mrs. Pond. I went to my room after my ride, and took off a light cloak which was fastened with three pins, each having a diamond in its head. I stuck them all into a cushion on that dressing table. Is the room locked? asked Nick. Yes, replied Mrs. Pond, and she produced the key of the door which opened from the hall above. Will you allow me to go up there now? Certainly. She handed the key to Nick. He took it and walked out of the parlor. Nick had already formed a sort of working theory in the case. He scarcely believed that it would hold water, but it would do for a starter. The most probable explanation that had come to him was that Mrs. Pond had not really been robbed at all. It might be that she had some motive for making these articles vanish. Perhaps she had some need of money, and was secretly selling them against the wish of her husband and her father. So, when Nick took that key and went toward that room, he did not expect to find the three diamond pins in the position described by the lady. He found the door locked, and he opened it by means of the key. Then he locked it behind him, leaving the key in the lock. He turned at once to a dressing table. The three pins were there, just as Mrs. Pond had said. Nick laughed softly to himself. That looks bad for my first shot at this queer case, he said, but perhaps she didn't dare work the game while I was in the house. He glanced out of the window of the room. Two servants were in the yard. They seemed to be explaining the robberies to a new driver of a groceryman's wagon, for they had one of his arms apiece and were pointing to the window. Nick walked into the sitting room and spent some minutes examining the walls and especially the door leading toward the old part of the house. He found nothing at all to reward his search. There absolutely was no secret entrance. The detective decided that nothing further could be done in that room. He walked toward the other. To his astonishment, he found that the door had been closed while he had been busy with his investigations. He sprang against it. The door yielded a little, and yet he could not open it. Some person stronger than he seemed to be holding it on the other side. He drew back for a spring. That door would have gone to splinters if it had stood in his way again. Instead, it swung open the instant he touched it, 
and the force of his lunge took him nearly to the middle of the room. In an instant he was on guard, but he saw no one. The room was quiet, and it was empty. The door into the hall was locked as he had left it. All was the same, except that on the dressing-table was the cushion, bearing two diamond pens instead of three. The robbery had been done, as one might say, under the nose of the greatest detective in the world. Well, this takes my breath away, said Nick to himself. It's the nerviest challenge that ever was sprung on me. End of section 12 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.